Hello, welcome to Crazy Bird Podcast. I'm your host, Violeta Kaminska, and today we are hosting Carla Diana. Hello, Carla. How are you? Hello, Violeta. I'm doing well. Thanks. It's great to talk with you in Savannah. I'm here in Michigan. Michigan. Cold Michigan. It's a bit mm -hmm. cold in Savannah <laughs> today. Well, let me introduce you to our listeners, and then I'm going to jump right into our conversation. I can't wait to chat. Super cool. Carla Diana is a designer, author, and educator who explores the impact of future technologies through hands-on experiments in product design and tangible interaction. She has designed a range of products from robots to connected home appliances, and her work has appeared on the covers of Popular Science, Technology Review, and the New York Times Sunday Review. Carla has been granted the author of creating the 4D design program at the Cranbrook Academy of Art. Serving as its first designer in residence, it began accepting students in fall 2019. She also serves as head of design for Diligent Robotics, an Austin, Texas-based company where advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning manifest in robot assistance to help healthcare workers. Carla writes and lectures frequently on the social impact of robotics and emerging technology and created the world's first children's book on 3D printing, Leo the Maker Prince. She co-hosts the RoboPsych podcast, a show that explores the design and psychological impact of human-robot interaction. Her latest book, My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human, published by Harvard Business Review Press, comes out in March and is available for pre-order now. Carla holds an MFA in 3D Design from Cranbrook Academy of Art and a BA in Mechanical Engineering from the Cooper Union. Welcome to Crazy Bird Podcast, Carla. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for that generous introduction. Thank you so much for finding time. You're a very busy person, so I really appreciate you finding some time for the Crazy Bird Podcast. I think you are a wonderful crazy bird, <laughs> and you've done so much. I have a lot of questions, but first of all, you said you're in Michigan. What are you doing there in Michigan besides living? Obviously. Yeah. Well, I am here. I moved here. I'm really a native New Yorker and have a lot of my heart in New York. But I uh, moved here more than three years ago at this point to create and launch, as you mentioned in my bio, the 4D design program at Cranbrook Academy of Art. So People who aren't in the realms of art and design might not be familiar with Cranbrook, but it's really was an epicenter of design modernism. And there were many influential designers such as Charles and Ray Eames. And, you know, and the campus is designed by Saarinen, who was part of actually establishing the whole art academy. And so it's really a wonderful community that's completely immersed in art and design with a very, very rich and long history. So the opportunity to come here and create something totally new, and it's the first new department in 47 years. So it was an opportunity that I really jumped at. So I moved and I'm here and we're in the suburban Detroit area. So if anyone's interested in Cranbrook, and we are starting to look at our next cohort for the fall, which is also an exciting moment. Mm -hmm. I have never visited Cranbrook. I haven't visited yet. I saw its website and I saw a lot of images. It looks like a beautiful campus too. It's a gorgeous campus. It's it's pretty much like living inside of a nature park that's full of sculpture everywhere. So come visit. 
I invite I you. will definitely come and visit one day. I wanted to say that I studied at California College of the Arts, MFA in design, interdisciplinary design. And I had a few professors who graduated from Cranbrook. Oh, and one of them was Martin Vaneski. Oh, yes. Before I got to know you and before I learned about 4D program, I had a very specific understanding of what Cranbrook is. School of mm -hmm. thought, focused on hands, objects. Yeah. It's really interesting. And then modernism. Uh -huh. Right. And then I think it's really fascinating, this combination of you created this new program, 4D. So yeah. I'm actually really curious, if you don't mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about this program, how is it a new fit into Cranbrook, how it adds to that? And what is 4D? Yeah, that's a good question. People say 3D. Okay, I just, I'm catching up on 3D printing. Right. But what is 4D right now? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yep, that is the... Big question. Uh, yeah, first of all, Martin Vanesky is great. I'm looking over at my bookshelf. There is a book that he did that I'm not seeing, but it is called, it is beautiful. It's, I'm going to get the name wrong. It is beautiful and then it's gone. Yes, yes. It is beautiful. Then gone. Yeah, I see it now. You know, which I think is very much also kind of the Cranbrook experience. So I've, I've hacked a way to be here because when you're a student, you're here and yeah, then it's gone. So the 4D design program. So everyone knows. So our programs here, graphic design is actually called 2D design. Normally we call product design is called the 3D. And then we have 4D, which adds the element of time. So the way that I look at it is we are looking at the way that all of our artifacts that we design become animated through the, you know, have the aspect of time. So that is essentially light, sound, and movement. And so those are the three th ways that that manifests and, and things become dynamic and they do so through our craft, so to speak. And so you were asking kind of about the relationship. I mean, Cranbrook has a very, very rich history in crafts. You know, we, in fact, some of our, there are 10 other departments and you know, I mentioned 2D and 3D. We have architecture, but we also have metalsmithing, fiber, and ceramics. So you know these things that are like deeply steeped in the craft. And so I see, you know, it was it was one of the more exciting parts about this opportunity was to come to a place to do essentially what I'm describing is interactive or interaction design, but do it in a place that has this grounding in the physical world and the physical artifact so that we're not just thinking about how we interact with software on a screen, but really interacting with everything in our world that can become interactive. That may be the walls, it may be the furniture, it may be sculptures, it may be, you know, a projection map or some other way that we work with that. And so our craft, so to speak, is code. So we do computer programming, form. So we're still, again, thinking about how something is shaped, what it feels like, what material it's made out of, and then electronics. So all of the students are using, there's a very popular electronics platform that is called Arduino, that is just really a way of using sensors and giving instructions to the sensor input and what to do with that. So yeah, that's what it is. It's sound, light, and motion through form, code, and electronics. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, I'm thinking how to formulate that question. Students come and they study for two years is the MFA program that you Yes, do. exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular a project that has to be created for thesis? Yeah. So 
the way that our work culminates. So the, the pedagogy is actually pretty unique here in that we don't have classes. So we like to say we have no classes and no grades, and which is not, but it's also not exactly true because really what a lot of my work is that I'm curating a two-year experience. So I bring in visiting artists, I bring in folks to do workshops. Um, we just had a designer, Ken Crayer, who was here and he spent two days with the students and then we had a dinner with him. And, um, you know, we're starting to get back into it during, you know, last year, everything that we did was virtual, but now we're, we're starting to get back into having our visitors come more in person as they feel comfortable doing so. And as, as we can make sure that that's safe mm -hmm. to do. So it is really a planned out two years. And it does culminate in the opportunity to, we don't call it a thesis, so we call it a master statement, but there is a document that the students will prepare where they, you know, summarize their investigation over the two years. And then one of the things that I think is also really lovely about the Cranbrook opportunity is we have an exquisite museum, a contemporary art museum that draws big shows and, and audiences from all over the country sometimes. And every student gets a space in that museum for the degree show. So every year that museum gets turned over to the students from the end of April through May for degree show, which is there. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's also, it's not a thesis because it's a master statement and it's not a thesis project because it's a degree show exhibition that's really mm -hmm. crafted towards that particular time and that particular, you know, that kind of general audience. But yeah, that's how it works. Wonderful. Now, robots. I feel like in your work, the word robots and robotics comes mm -hmm. up a lot. So yes, I have a question about that. Okay, go for it. A few years ago, I feel like times are changing so fast when we talked about robots, technology, that 10 years ago was so different. Now it's changing so fast. Mm -hmm. But I would say maybe even 10 years ago, quite a few people were skeptical about robots. When we talked about robots, we talked, for example, about robots on the moon. It was very unique. You didn't see them or you didn't talk about them in a very everyday experience. Obviously, mm -hmm. we have now a Roomba as a robot. But also, there were, there were lots of question marks around robots and people were very outspoken about it. How we as humans are becoming maybe more even disconnected and lonely. I listened to one of your co-hosting the... The RoboPsych podcast. Yes, the RoboPsych yeah. podcast. And it was actually your episodes 101 mm -hmm. when you talk about ethics. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, you know, that, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, I remember reading different books, even when I studied California College of the Arts. And during that time, there were lots of conversation about robots, how they can help us especially in certain fields like medicine, but at the same time, how can they make us feel lonely? So yeah. I'm curious about it because I also feel that 10 years, a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. And I think the concerns we had 10 years ago, actually are not really concerns anymore. And also you have published, your book is coming out in March. And I feel like that's a little bit of a response to what I'm asking you because the title is My Robot Gets Me. Mm -hmm. how social design can make new products more human. Mm -hmm. And I think, so my question is really about, you know, the concern people had, some had years ago about this human aspect, how we are walking away from human aspect because of robots coming in. But I think mm -hmm. what you are saying and where you are, you're actually telling us that the products can be more human and can mm -hmm. actually be part of our life rather than separate us from that part. 
so there were a lot of things. You said a lot of things right then. So I'm gonna I'm gonna unpack that's it. My, that's my usual. Okay, <laughs> that's the crazy bird. That's the crazy bird part of it. There's a bird that said a lot of things. So, uh, but I can unpack it a little bit, and and I'm also gonna give a little plug to my uh, co-host of the podcast, who's also the creator of the podcast, and his his name is Dr. Tom Goriello, and he's a PhD psychologist. So that's one of the things I really enjoy about that part of my work. That project is coming to it from a designer's point of view, but all of the things I think about a designer and then bouncing that off of someone who's a psychologist, because, you know, as you know, in design, we're really always thinking about the human aspect and what the relationship is with the project and what, what the object might right. mean in people's lives and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, I think that particularly around robotics and when I say robotics, yeah, you know, you're thinking, if we looked, if we said robotics 10 years ago, it really means like things in a factory or things in a movie from Star Wars and um, Ex Machina and a ton of other uh, films that have been out since then. But uh, what I, what really prompted me to write the book is that, um, you know, robotics is really, I mean, it's essentially a way of looking at electronic systems, right? And that those are becoming embedded in our everyday objects. Like I'm sitting in front of a microphone right now, but I could imagine this microphone actually spinning around and moving to, and, you know, listening to me. And then, you know, I tell me telling it to turn off. It has a behavior, right? And designers now have to craft that behavior, you know, give it a definition to, to, you know, somehow define how it's going to move, how it's going to behave when this light turns on to let me know that it's muted or not muted. Like all of those things really are a complex relationship between me and this artifact then. So the book is really like why it's called social, like my robot gets me how social design, when I say social design, what I'm talking about is philosophy around product design of approaching an artifact by thinking about the conversation that happens between you and that thing. And it's not, you know, there are some cases when we look at things like Siri and Alexa and Google Voice, where it's literally a conversation, right? But the book's not all about that. You know, it's also about these ways that we communicate with our objects. Like even, so I'm sitting here in, in front of a laptop, like if the keyboard starts to glow, you know, that's giving me a clue or a message or so, you know, how do we, what is that lexicon? How do we code all of that, those kinds of things, and think about being sensitive to not having something talk to you all the time, but, you know, having this kind of abbreviated and background conversation. So that's a lot of what the book is about. And then ethics part that you mentioned is really, you know, a giant, giant, giant question. And, you know, I think that it is, that's an ongoing conversation. And that's one of the things that we talk a lot about in the podcast. In fact, some of the many older episodes really address, you know, we've got some researchers that we've talked to about, and there, there are many different aspects to that. I mean, some of it is, you know, certainly thinking about vulnerable populations. If we look at toys and kids and they're starting to have robotics embedded in that and, you know, what happens when you start to trust an object or build an emotional connection with an object and, you know, how do we make sure that those things aren't being exploited? That's a whole aspect of ethics. And then there's a whole realm around privacy that, you know, we're just starting to see the uglier parts of that, you know, where we have like tons and tons of very personal data that we've allowed to be out there through our technological 
objects and, you know, no longer have control over. And yeah, I could talk for hours about it. Thank you. I also find it a fascinating subject, but I also see the changes, the questions mm-hmm. we asked 10 years ago. They are changing, obviously, because the times are changing and how yeah. technology and robotics are being right. used. And like you said, what it means, even the word can mean slightly different thing today yeah. because it's not mm-hmm. really that robot that looks like a robot in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's something that we use, we, have, we are surrounded by that. You mentioned books. And I mentioned books when I was introducing you. Mm-hmm. The book is coming out in March, right? Oh, actually it came out. Oh, I did. had to change. Yeah, I think I had I hadn't I had updated my website because it said it's coming out in March, and I thought, ooh, so I've just changed that. It's out. It's out. It's available. Actually, it's quite affordable on Amazon. Although, if you want to get it from a more independent bookseller, I also very much support that. Yes, if you search for Carla Diana, which is just mm-hmm. D I A N A, which is my last name, it sounds like my first name, and my robot gets me, the book will come up. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So that's one book. And then a little bit earlier, a few years ago, mm-hmm. you wrote a book for children. Yes. Also. So can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah, sure. So that book is called Leo the Maker Prince Journeys in 3D Printing. And I have to say, I think it was one of my favorite projects because it really it connected me with an audience of kids. It allowed to be really, you know, really explore an idea in technology, but in a really playful way. So, you know, a lot of just the way I've run my studio, my practice and everything I do is a curiosity for how we're going to adopt technology mm-hmm. in our lives. And in doing so, I'm always kind of like, you know, things kind of flare up and they stand out to me as really interesting things that will change a society or work or, you know, some way that we live. And what I was noticing was the advent of desktop 3D printers, you know, and as a designer and a researcher, I had experienced 3D printers, but they were these, you know, large machines that cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the thought that that there would be one, I mean, now you can get one for a few hundred dollars, made me really want to do a project around. So the way that I work is also I kind of invent projects for myself that give me a reason to get my hands dirty with whatever it is. And so this was one of those projects that I I just felt like, oh, I really want to I really want to explore the potential mm-hmm. for 3D printing in our everyday lives. And what I did then is interviewed a number of experts, like people worked at the software companies that were making 3D modeling software, people who were working at the companies that were making at the machines. And then, you know, I happened to go for a tour to my uh, my alma mater. I went to a school called the Marymount School for Girls in New York. And they were putting in, and they said, oh, we really would love your consultation. We're putting in a fab lab. And they have all these 3D printers. And then so that the light bulb really went off for me. And I just felt like, oh, I just want to take these ideas and kind of put them in the minds of kids. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, that that's really where, if you're really talking about ideas for the future, you know, that's that's really, and, and also I, I just had, you know, there were, there were times that I would have conversations with grownups about this and they would say, oh, you know, that's never going to be real. We'll never use that for manufacturing because the, you know, the cost is too high and it's never going to be efficient enough. And I just felt like, you know, when I talk to kids, like they're not, they're not limiting the potential in that way. And so what I did is I distilled it into seven possible futures that start with a very ordinary, like an inventor using it for prototyping, which is something that was already being done. And then going all the way up to, you know, 
downloading products in your home when you need them. And then, you know, eventually you know, 3D printed food and then it escalates to a 3D printer on the moon that's, you know, using lunar dust and solar energy and this kind of stuff. So that was based on a research paper that I had had read. All of the objects that are in the book, there's a URL that will connect readers and they can download and 3D print them so that they can actually be touching the objects that they're reading about that are part of the narrative and the story and then have this other connection with it. And yeah, it was a really, really satisfying project. I did a lot of, it was published by Maker Media that was connected with the Maker Fairs at the time. And so for the book tour, I did a lot of talks around those Maker Fairs and actually met kids who had read the book and knew the characters, which was super satisfying. And at one point I had gotten an email from a library in Scotland that said, we're using your book with program we do with visually impaired kids. And they are able to, you know, we read the story out loud, but then they're able to touch these objects. And, and so we really want to thank you for creating this. So it was, I know it was, a re- it was a very, very satisfying project. It was the first book of that kind for children, right? Yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it got, it was, it was you know, it also got a lot of attention and press. So you said you always look for things to do. <laughs> you like to be busy. <laughs> yeah. And from your busyness, always amazing things come up. So I have a question about your education, educational background and For how, sure. you know, mechanical engineering. It's not a very original question by why mechanical engineering? How did you just decide you're going to be studying mechanical engineering? Oh yeah. I mean, it's a good question. It's a little random. You know, I was a kid probably like you. I think a lot of designers are this way. I loved art and creating things and I loved science and math and I was looking for a way for those things. And I just knew that I wanted to create things. So mm-hmm. mechanical engineering seemed like the right path. Although, you know, three quarters of the way through my engineering degree, I discovered that there was such a thing as uh, design, industrial design in particular. And I just felt like, oh, that's what I really wanted to be doing. So I always kind of pined away for that. And then, and then that's why I finally mm-hmm. went back to get a graduate degree, you know, which is a lot full circle of what I also hope to look for in applicants for the program that I'm running now is that, you know, I think there are a lot of people who have a creative spirit and don't really quite know how to funnel that and wind up maybe in something that's a little bit more linear than what they want to be doing. I just feel like that's also my story because I studied my first master's is in applied linguistics and my other master's is in design. Okay. Graphic design theories are based on linguistics. So I thought, oh, that makes sense now. I just didn't understand it then. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you bring a depth to it. And then design research. So it was all connected. It's always, Mm -hmm. I think, to bring. So another question that I always ask is about creative process. That's my question to you, Carla. Do you have a specific creative process? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I, I think that I have a process that runs continually in the background that's just around exploring. And so there's always just experiments. And this is, you know, I used to work for a firm in New York called Smart Design. And while I was there, had created a a lab within the firm because I just felt like, you know, when we're in between projects, we we could be exploring these things so that then when we actually have a client project in hand, it's almost like having a palette of paints. And if you've never painted with this color before, now you suddenly, you know, and and so the color might be an RFID tag or a light sensor or something like that, or some new little 
you know, motor. And so, so that's just something that kind of runs in the background is I'm always trying to understand what the potential is for the medium essentially of working with technology. But then, you know, in terms of process, I mean, I, you know, it, it, I really do have a process where, you know, re- some kind of research plays a role. So like with the Leo, the maker prints book, I really did. It was very important for me to talk with experts and, you know, get a, get a Mm -hmm. sense of what ideas were out there and where, what trends were going to be happening. And then like with the work that I do with, you know, so you mentioned in my bio, diligent robotics, you know, with that work, I will, there is a UX researcher, you know, so we may, we are developed robots that go in a hospital setting. And so there's a research team that will actually go into hospitals and talk with nurses and talk with technologists and other folks who are going to be working with the robots. And so it's always important to me to at least have an understanding of that. So I place a lot of importance on getting that, even though I'm not actually doing the research, but the research is a big starting point for the process. And then, you know, because those objects that I like to create and I call them social I call it a social exchange. I, I actually really treat it as a social exchange in the process. And so if I'm, you know, before I started working with Diligent, when I would, I would work with a client and what I do with Diligent now is that I will have us act out this exchange between the object and the person and someone plays the role. So if it's going to be like a smart oven in a, you know, a kitchen, someone plays the role of the oven. And we might do things like we build a lot with foam core or try to create sort of mock environments that might just be made out of, again, you know, cardboard or foam core, but that just allow you to be in physical space with your body Mm -hmm. with these objects and artifacts and then really act out what the case studies are, you know? So Mm -hmm. for the hospital, for example, the main task of the robot is a lot of delivery tasks. So being able to talk through it, you know, have somebody play the role of, you know, so let's say we're thinking about what can happen in a pharmacy. So somebody plays the role of the pharmacist, somebody plays the role of the nurse who's sending the robot off and somebody plays the role of the robot. And, and, it sounds absurd or like a kindergarten exercise, but it is really an important foundation. And, you know, even though, so those exchanges, and we'll do things like type, put things on post-its that, you know, represent what you might put into an interface, but we might actually, you know, use English words. And then like, you know, like I said before, like that's the starting point, but it helps you, it really helps you understand the core of the experience. And then those English words might get changed or translated. They might show up on a screen. They might turn into being a light or, you know, a sound that helps people know what's happening. But, you know, that's really the process. And then at the heart and soul of it. So that's a lot of what I talk about in the, in the book. And, ultimately what happens is that then kind of explodes into a whole series of smaller projects, right? So there might be a project around the sound. There might be a project around like one of the robot that we do for the hospital has this band of light on its head. So there's, you know, a whole project around like, well, what are the colors of that light? And how do we know like somebody that's looking at the robot from down the hall, do they know if that robot's working or not? And how do they know that and all of that? And and then all the shape and the form. And then, I mean, with Diligent, I'm very fortunate to work with a fantastic team of engineers and 
software AI specialists. So it's a great gig, <laughs> you know, because, you know, so I lean on them a lot. And then I have a lot of a process where I will suggest something and then they might come back with, you know, how that might work mm-hmm. from a technology point of view. And we go back and forth. Mm-hmm. When you started talking about role playing, mm-hmm. the initial process, it made me think of animators. How they oh work, yeah, yeah. How they work on their characters, and they really before they just start role playing, and mm-hmm. they actually act as those characters. Right, right. Yeah, and sometimes animators get brought into some of the robotics projects because yeah, they have a lot of insight into how something communicates non-verbally through mm-hmm. its form, through its stance, through its movement. And there's an animator named Doug Dooley who I interviewed in the book to talk about that a little bit. Thank you for sharing that. So the last question for you, Carla, is there any project that you can share with us right now? Is there anything new you're working on right now? And I expect you, you might not answer. I'm answering for you actually right now. That's usually what I do. I ask question, I answer. But I kind of expect in your head, you're saying, of course, I'm working on six, but I can't tell you. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you're working on something. Um, well, let's see. I mean, right now there's a there's a lot going on with the with the work with the students here in 4D design, and we so I'm doing a lot of coaching right now. So they we uh, there's a cancer center here. It's called the Henry Ford Healthcare Facility, and they have a full time curator. So they invited our group the 4D design program to propose interactive experiences or just, you know, experiences in general, because they hire a curator because they realize how important state of mind is when Mm -hmm. you're going through care. And, and I really love that. I really love that they place that much importance on art as an experience, like a really, really valuable Mm -hmm. experience. So there are a few um, teams that are working on some pretty interesting projects for that space. So that's one thing that I'm working on right now. And then, you know, I really have always just wanted to, I have, I'm sitting here in the studio space. So part of what is part of the job at Cranbrook and and leading the department is to lead a little bit by example. So I am, you know, getting my lab together to just be able to do experiments quickly with some of the interactive prototypes. I can't wait to see the results or see, you know, some process. Now, before we say goodbye to each other for now, I wanted to ask if you can share with our listeners where they can find more information about you, when they can find your books, where they can find anything. They yeah, can. well, thank you so much. Um, I do, I keep a website at CarlaDiana.com. Uh, so you can always find me there. And then I also do post on Instagram at Carla Diana. And then the 4D program has also a, at Cranbrook 4D on Instagram, uh, which is a good way of seeing what our whole group is up to. Once again, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the knowledge you shared with us, Carla. And thank you for finding time in your very busy schedule. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for your great questions. Thank you so much, Carla. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Crazy Bird Podcast. The Crazy Bird Podcast is hosted by Violeta Kaminska. Our guest for this episode was Carla Diana. You can learn more about Carla's work on her website, 
at carladiana.com and you can follow her on Instagram at carladiana and at cranbrook4d. Our theme music is inspired by Tambourine by French composer François-Joseph Gosset. The improvisation is performed by Agnieszka Kowali. Nature sounds are recorded by Violeta Kaminska. This episode was recorded, edited, and produced by Violeta Kaminska.